0: The text before us tonight is going to address the very question you've just been discussing. We'll get to it, but first let me give you some background. The Lord Jesus, who we love because he first loved us, was in Jerusalem. A very real Savior was in a very real place, Jerusalem. And he was under fire in Jerusalem. He was in the temple area specifically. And the Jewish religious leaders uh, were extremely hostile, and the Lord was involved in a very contentious discussion with them. And it was so heated that they began to formulate a plan not to dismiss him, but to destroy him. Uh, they had murderous intentions, and nonetheless, he did not at this point flee. Absolutely not. He was walking about in a public and well-trafficked area. And in the course of so doing, he came upon a man who was deposited in a place as if he was a piece of baggage. We're told, we read this last time, we're told this man had uh, was afflicted with a condition from birth. He, he had congenital blindness, he was blind from birth there he was deposited at one of the gates of the temple as worshippers were coming and going around the temple precincts and there he was begging that was all that could be expected of a blind man in that day i mean his personhood was not very much in the thinking of folks he's the blind beggar and the lord jesus paused and the text says he saw him he saw the one who couldn't return the favor the blind man was not able even to see this jesus But the Lord's disciples saw him. They were always there. It's very interesting. As you track the Lord's travels in the Gospels, always nearby you'll see the disciples. He was always, always about teaching and training them. And so they perceive this uh, remarkable rabbi, who they don't really even yet understand fully, is pausing to pay attention to this, this blind man. And they perceive by intuition he's about to engage the blind man in something. He's about to maybe minister to him, do something on his behalf. And so a question pops into their mind, and they ask it. They said, who sinned? And they have only two possibilities, either this man or his parents. They put that question to the Lord because they labored under the terrible misconception that everyone's affliction is due to that one's particular sin. And so this man is blind because this blind man sinned. And if it's not the blind man who sinned, surely it's his parents who birthed him. They sinned. Sin is the explanation for all suffering. That's it. That settles the matter. Let's get on with it. And so that was their question. And you remember the Lord's response. He said, no, it was neither this man nor his parents who sinned. But what has befallen him is not arbitrary. It's not the cruel winds of fate. It's not an accident. What befell him was designed by God so that it would be an opportunity for God to display his glory through this very man. That's what the Lord said. And then he said something else. It's in verse 4 of chapter 9. That's where we left off. Verse 4 of chapter 9. I'll give you a chance to get there. We're only going to look at this verse, verse 4, and a little bit of verse 5. So not much. We're slowing down because it's an exhausting pace we've been operating under. <laughs> so, so chapter 9, verse 4. Listen, listen. He said, the Lord said, Remember, he's addressing his disciples. We must work the works of him who sent me as it is day. Night is coming, the Lord said, when no man can work. So they were involved in a pretty heavy theological matter. It's called the problem of evil and suffering. If God is good, why do people suffer? They resolved the issue simply by saying people suffer because they sin. It was an equation. Sin leads to or equals suffering. That settles it. Boom, boom, boom. So they're involved in a theological matter, kind of a philosophical sort of a thing. Their interest, how did this happen? The Lord's interest... What can we do for him? Totally different perspectives. They were more interested in talking about the man than in helping the man, the blind man. Now, folks, theological questions are good. I hope we're captivated by the profundity of the Bible and theological matters and heaven and all the rest and salvation. I hope they captivate our, our thinking and we talk about it all the time. But folks, there comes a time when sometimes there's too much thinking and not enough doing. And we're going to have all eternity to think about major theological matters. And there they'll all be resolved because our discussions will be in the presence of the Master Teacher, Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on this occasion, they seemed to be focused on the wrong thing. And so they were struggling with the problem of making sense of pain. They had a difficult time understanding pain. But there comes a time when, in spite of unresolved theological matters in our mind, there comes a time when talking and thinking has to stop and working must take place. And so the Lord moves his disciples past the matter they were stuck on, and he tells them, this is what he says, he said, we must work. That's what he said. He does not engage them in a deep theological discussion. He did on other occasions. But on this occasion, the blind man is right there. He is lost in the crowd, but not by Rabbi Jesus. Nobody's lost in the crowd. And the Lord knows his situation and feels his pain and sees his potential to bring glory to Almighty God. And that's what he wants his people to be focused on, We're not going to resolve all things to our satisfaction this side of heaven, but we've got plenty of work to do. There are blind beggars all around us in one way or another, and so the Lord wants to redirect their attention, and so he says, we must work. Now, I want to tell you something. If you have right now uh, before you any translation, any translation except the King James Version, then... Your translation says, we must work. Check me out. Look at it. If you have any translation, any, but the King James Version, yours reads, we must work. But if you have the King James Version, yours reads differently. Yours says, I must work. Am I right about this? Of course I am. Yeah, so, 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 so why is that? How do we account for the discrepancy? It's kind of maybe a big one of sorts. How do we account for it? Well, the translation work of the King James Version and the translation work of the other good versions of the Bible made recourse to different manuscripts. Now, I want to tell you this. I could spend the rest of our time going into detail about that issue. I could fill the rest of the time talking to you about the manuscripts, inferior ones, uh, superior ones, older ones, uh, earlier, uh, later ones, and all the rest. We can go through all this. But I don't think it's the most profitable use of our time at this particular time. And in fact, if I did that, I think I would be a falling prey to the very thing the Lord's disciples 2,000 years ago were. Uh, they were stuck on a theological matter, and it impeded their forward movement, and so, so so, so, so we could wax bold on this particular issue and do textual criticism and examine the manuscripts and see whose translation is the most accurate and all the rest, and I'm not saying it's not a matter that is of no importance, but I'm not sure it's the most important matter under the sun, especially for us on this occasion, and so we're not going to... We're not going to do that, especially since, uh, regardless of how your translation reads, I or we, I think you'll see in just a few moments, it leads to the same conclusion, and that is, we don't have a lot of time. There's work to be done while it is still day. It's a metaphor, day. It means while we're alive. Night comes when we pass, at which time no man can do any particular work. And so the Lord in this case, uh, saw himself as one sent by the Father with a job to do. And so he says, I must work, I or we must work the works of him who sent me. Can you see the word must? You should have something like that in any translation. It's an imperative. I must. And the word must removes From the Lord's thinking, any possibility that the work given him by the Father to do is optional. It is not left up to his discretion. This is the work he must do. It's a mandate. He has no choice. And so the Lord is speaking here with a sense of urgency I hope doesn't escape us as we sit here in a rather comfortable environment. Urgently, the Lord is saying, I must. I must. I'm a sent one. He's the premier missionary. I must. I'm on mission. I must do the works of him who sent me. I'm a sent forth one. And I must do this as it is day. What did he mean? Well, soon he'll be crucified. Uh, From this point, the point of his statement to crucifixion is only about six months he knows he only has about six months. He has work to do while here. Hence the sense of urgency. While it's day, I must work. And then he says, it's not always day. Night is coming. For him, he'll be crucified. He'll be buried. Uh, he'll be resurrected from death. He'll ascend to his father. He will leave the earth. He says, there comes a time, night, it's called When No Man Can Work. There comes a time when, for each of us, our time is over. Hence, the Lord speaks with a great sense of urgency. He speaks about the limited nature of the time we have. It's a very valuable commodity. Now, now don't misunderstand the Lord is still working. Absolutely. But he's, he's working now in an entirely different way than he did while he was here. And so because his time here was limited, he was moved by an extreme sense of urgency to do the work he was sent here to do. And folks, this is true of us as well. That's why the verse says, either I or we must work the works of God who sent me. As it is day, night is coming when no man can work. Now, I'm going to play my hand and, and uh, just tell you what I think about this and And don't hate me for it. Uh, I think the preferred translation of the verse uh, is we and not I. And if you ever want to argue about it, uh, I'm prepared to do so over lunch at your expense. (laughs) Uh, I think the better translation, I'm not, it's not not a matter of, a. am not making this up. I think upon close examination, the far better translation, the far better rendering is we. Now, if this is correct, if the verse says, not I, but we must work the works of him, boy, does that open new horizons for us, just the difference in the word. If it's we, I think it is, then the Lord is including us in the urgent work which was delegated to him. We. He sees us in partnership. Of course, his remarks were, to his disciples who stood there with him, but by extension, it's to us, his disciples, 2,000 years later. We must work the works of him who sent me. I, I don't think, you see, I don't think the Lord is saying, I have work to do. No, I think he's saying, we have work to do. We have work to do. And since this work is so urgent, and since this work cannot be performed, When the night comes, that is to say when we die, we ought to urgently be about this work and pause to make sure we know what this work is. You can read the text so quickly, and you think you know what the work of God is. But if it's this urgent and important, shouldn't we answer the question, what is this work we're supposed to be doing? So this relates to your discussion. If the Lord is going to come for us, if our place is in heaven, I ask you to discuss why are we still here? What is the work of God we are to do while here? And I think here's the answer. I think we are here to help God get more of his family. I think that's it. I think, that's, I think the Lord Jesus came for that sole purpose. I think the Lord Jesus came to separate out from the world those who would believe in him and thereby becomes, become worshipers now and forevermore of his Father. I think the Lord Jesus came in order to save those who would be presented to his father one day as a gift. I think the Lord Jesus came to do such a work that one day he could say, Father, I love you, and as a result, I give you this gift. This is the gift purchased for you in my blood. It's this one, it's this one, it's this one, it's this one. This one called upon my name. This one called upon my name. This one has accepted me. Oh, God, here is the gift of your family. I think that's the premier work which the Lord came to perform, and I think that's the work we are to share in as well, and I would like to prove it to you. So, I'm going to read to you uh, slowly a series of verses, because I know you're not believing me, and therefore, I want to, I want to prove to you that this is, this is right. Here, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Listen. And although you were formerly, talking about believers, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you, the Lord, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? Listen, listen. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the work Jesus came to do. We formerly were engaged in the things of darkness. We were in a domain characterized by darkness. Formerly, that was the case. And yet, this Lord Jesus reconciled us. How? In his fleshly body through death. Why? To present us. You present a gift to someone. He wants to present us as a gift to the Father. To present to us before him. How? Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is the work Jesus came to do. This is the work somehow we are to share in, helping God get his family holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There's more. Listen, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. This is typically read when we talk about husband's roles and wife's roles and so on. Sometimes I think we're missing more of it. Listen, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. We, we, we teach and preach that all the time. That's good. And gave himself up for her. Listen. So that he, not the husband, Christ, Christ. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Nobody tells us. He gave, herself, he gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, the church we're not talking about a woman, the church made up of men and women, that he, the Lord, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, listen, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Can you see it? Our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we are wed by faith, we being the bride of Christ, sacrificed himself in death, in resurrected life, so as to present us to the Father, but in a different state, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, without spot or wrinkle. Can you say it? This is the work uh, the Lord came to perform. This is the very work he wants us to share in. He wants us to help God get his family. Listen, Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It's talking about John the Baptist. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Why? So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Don't you see it? That's the work Jesus came to do, to make ready, and he has all means at his disposal with which to do it. And this is the work he wants to share in, to make ready a people prepared for Almighty God. That's that's the work. Listen, Romans chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That's us, which he prepared beforehand. For glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The purpose of God, the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work is to make known the riches of God's glory upon vessels of mercy. That's us. We're vessels of mercy. We're recipients of God's mercy. Some Jews, some Gentiles, everybody who by faith has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. We are putting on display the mercy of God. And the Lord said, he did all that he did in order to make known the riches of God's glory, which is poured out upon one such as us. And we have been, the text says, prepared beforehand for what? His glory. This is the work of Almighty God that he wants us to share in. One final verse, Romans eight nineteen, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To identify, to locate, to regenerate To save, to make separated a special people called the sons, the daughters of God, who one day will be revealed as such to the Father. And even the anxious longing of creation, it's not for global warming to be dealt with. No, the anxious longing of creation is for the revealing of the sons of God. Can you see it? Folks, the Lord came, he said, to do with urgency the work of the one who sent him. And the Lord said, we must share in it. And I think the work we must share in is the work of participating in the saving and sanctifying of a special people group who one day will be presented to the Father as his sons and daughters. Why? Well, why do we say our Father Because God loves being a dad. And I want to tell you, our father wants more than an only child. I know the Lord Jesus is the only begotten son of God. I do not compare myself to him. But even the only begotten son of God came to get the father more kids. God wants an extended family. That's what he came to do. Now, folks, the entire human family was supposed to be... (laughs) God's, the entire human family, all the descendants of Adam and Eve were to have been God's family. But sin and rebelliousness entered in. <clears throat> and that changed everything. And since sin messed up everything, it has been God's merciful and gracious purpose to redeem from the human race a particular group of people, a family for himself, out of the fallen Human race. This is the Lord's work. And so the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ will become the head of a new race. Yeah. A new race of humanity purified from all contact and presence of sin and prepared to live eternally in the presence of Almighty God. This is the sanctifying work. The Lord Jesus Christ came to perform. And how did he intend to do it while here? I'll tell you. Two ways. He came to perform this work through the evangelization of the unsaved and the edification of the saved. Two E's, not new. This is what the Lord did. He came to evangelize the lost and to build up the saved. This is the work of God, and this is the work of God he wants us to share in. And as with the Lord, we must have a sense of urgency while the day is here, while the day is at hand. The night will come when we can't do this work anymore. At a predetermined time set by God, known only by Almighty God, we're going to depart from this place, because remember, our citizenship is in heaven. Our time here will be over. But only God knows the time of our departure. We do not. But since it could be at any time, it simply could be at any time. Therefore, we must urgently be about the Lord's business. We must be doing the work he wants us to do. The work of God given for us to do here, let me tell you this, can only be done here. Did you know that? The work of God given for us to do here can only be done here. I'll tell you what I mean. You cannot evangelize unsaved people in heaven. Why not? Because they're not there. And what's more, the intense and piercing needs of believers, fellow believers, which can be addressed here, you may not need to address them in heaven when there'll be total and complete satisfaction of needs. So the intense and urgent work of evangelism and edification of the saved, folks, those things can only take place over here. We have work to do. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with what is my purpose, folks, I'm telling you, the purpose is to share, to participate in the urgent work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to help the Father get and keep his family. And so for as long as God chooses to leave us here, he has left us here to invest in the family to be presented to him. So our singular work here is to do our part in getting God his family. That's the work bequeathed to us. However, though it's a singular work, it has a twofold thrust, it seems to me. First, we are to seek after those yet to be adopted into God's family. That's evangelism. We are to actively seek after those yet to be adopted into God's family because there are more while it's still day. And we are to do whatever we can to meet the needs of those already in God's family. You see? Now, some may lean more towards evangelism than edification, and some may uh, find more satisfaction in edification of believers than in evangelization of unbelievers. It's okay. We don't have to compare ourselves to one another. I'm just saying the totality of our efforts as the people of God, must involve evangelism and edification. It's not just enough to see someone saved. In order to preserve the fruits of evangelism, we have to cause that one to grow and mature. And it's not just enough to sit here and do Bible study. We have to extend the gospel to lost people out there. Can you see how both works? are so very, very important. And I think this twofold work, evangelism and edification, is clearly what the Lord Jesus was sent to do. And this is the work we are to do in our limited time here. And by the way, we can see the work of the Lord Jesus in a microcosm. Right here in this verse, in this chapter, we looked at with reference to the blind man. He saw the blind man, the man blind from birth. He stopped. He spoke to him, and he opened the man's eyes that he could see. We're not here To see that tonight, the Lord willing, next week we'll see the miraculous healing of this blind man. But that's what he did. The blind man was a lost man, not yet part of God's family. The Lord made sure he wasn't lost in the crowd. Everyone, so-called religious people, on their way to temple worship, passed this man by. Not the Lord Jesus, because his work is to seek and to save those who are lost. This man is blinded, not just physically. This man can't see his own Savior with his heart and with faith. The Lord came to open his spiritual eyes, the eyes of his heart, so he could be not only one given sight physically, but also one who could be saved spiritually. And so you see the first part of this singular work, evangelism. But while the Lord was doing this, I mentioned to you earlier, who's watching? The disciples. They're always there. And thank God, if the Lord didn't train up a few the gospel message would have ended in the first century. It wasn't the masses who who perpetuated the gospel. No, many people came for healings or for food. They had legitimate human needs, but they weren't really ready with dedication to follow the Lord Jesus. And so he invested his life in these 12, and one of them didn't turn out too good, as you know. I remember one time the Lord spent the whole night in prayer. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He spent the whole night in prayer. And then he went out and he selected the 12. And he trained up the 12. And the 12 trained up others. And and down to this very day, down to this very day. And so you see the twofold work of the Lord. Evangelization of the lost, the blind man. Edification of the saved. Always modeling, teaching, correcting, guiding, setting the pace for his disciples. Now, someone might say, no, you missed it, Stuart. Uh, The work of the Lord here in this text is to heal a blind man. So, uh, let me ask you this question. Is that our work? Are we supposed to perform miracles for the Lord Jesus, like uh, giving someone who's congenitally blind sight? Now, uh, that would lead to a real, real lengthy and controversial discussion over miracles and do they take place today the way they did in biblical times, and does every one of God's followers have miracle-working power, and what's the purpose of miracle? We can get into that whole big, big kind of a discussion, but because I don't want to, uh, let me just simply tell you, if God has given you the enablement um, to miraculously uh, heal someone, be used of God to heal someone of their affliction, I think you ought to do it. Uh, But uh, but even if you have that, let's call it a gift, let's say, Uh, even if you have that, surely you're reasonable enough uh, to admit that's not commonplace. You See, if you're one of these people who say, no, miracles should happen normatively, miracles should happen all the time, then I say to you, you don't know what a miracle is. Because a miracle, by definition, is an exception to the rule. A miracle is an interruption, an intrusion into the natural order of things. If that happened all the time, there would be no natural order of things. So even if you have miracle-working power, even if you do, I hope you're willing to admit it's the exception to the rules. So what then is the work of God? I don't think it's going about and healing people of their physical afflictions, as in this case, blindness. Why? Folks, it's a metaphor for spiritual blindness. You'll see by the time we get, if we get to the end of John 9, you'll see the healing of this man is so that he could see the Savior. The work of the Savior is not so much to give people their physical sight. The work of the Savior is to reveal he is the Savior. And he has the power to save people from sin. That's what he was and I'll prove this to you. Do you think the Lord Jesus just went around town performing random miracles? No. He did not do that. His works always were meant to confirm something. What? Well, the Old Testament prophets, prophets told us what and who to look for when Messiah, when the Savior comes. There were a lot of pretenders to the throne. Someone could say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. I mean, we have people in this day who are doing that kind of stuff. Well, how do you know they're not? So the Old Testament prophets, writing for God, gave us some indications of what things will be like when Messiah comes. I'll just read you one. Isaiah 35, verse 5. When Messiah comes, then... The eyes of the blind will be opened. This is why the Lord did what He did here. You know what He's saying, even without a word? I'm the Messiah. I opened the eyes of the blind man. This is not typically done. Nobody has done it. I did it. Why? To show you I'm the one Isaiah told you about. I'm the Messiah. I'm the genuine article. Those other people are counterfeits. I opened the eyes of the blind. Not at random. I specifically did this because Isaiah said, that's what you look for. When the Messiah is here, he will open the eyes of the blinded. The Lord Jesus said, "I, I did that. So folks... The ultimate work of the Lord, frankly, is not to go about healing people physically. If you got the gift, go ahead, use it. But that's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate goal of the Messiah is to open people's blinded spiritual eyes so that they could behold him as the savior of their sin. Because his twofold purpose, remember, is to save the lost and to build up those who are saved. He wants to help Previously, blinded people to see him as Savior, and then he wants us to progressively see him more clearly as Lord of life. When you get saved, you're not done. You then have to figure out how to live as a saved person. That's called edification of the believer. So we still have a kind of a progressive blindness. Oh, our sins are forgiven in an instant when we accept Jesus, the sin-bearer, as Savior. But then that begins the process of our eyes being opened wider and wider. Oh, you mean you don't want me to be mastered by alcohol anymore? I did not know this at the point of salvation. I had to grow into that. Oh, oh, you, you want me to exercise sexuality in the context of marriage with one other person, the one you happen to be married to? I didn't know that. But what I knew is if you got the equipment, use it before it rusts. I'm telling you, it's a whole, would have blinded. Listen to me, I didn't know about the sanctity of human life. I didn't know it's wrong if a baby of inconvenience is about to be birthed to. And retain your convenience. You should murder the baby. But I thought that makes sense to me. You know, this young couple—they're teenagers. They can't afford a baby, or, you know. That's the deal. I understand. I'm glad there's an option called abortion. <laughs> blindness, blindness. I did not know that marriage was between a man and a woman. I thought, hey, you know, if two people—they're not hurting anybody. A guy and a guy want to get married. So they're not hurting me. Two women. You know what? I didn't know about. It. Did you know this stuff? I didn't. You know what I didn't know? I didn't know that it's more blessed to give than receive. I thought you were supposed to save and invest. I read the Bible and it talks about giving. What in the world? Can you see progressively how we get to see? This is after salvation. When my eyes were open, I saw Jesus as Savior, but they opened, weren't open wide enough for me to understand his lordship over every aspect of my life. I had to grow in money, use of your body, what you watch on TV, all this. Stuff. But I didn't know about any of that. That's the twofold ministry of the Lord, and that's the ministry he wants us to be involved in. He wants us. To reach out to people yet to be in God's family with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they may be adopted as well. And then he wants us to do what we could to encourage and build up other believers so that they mature in the faith. That's what the Lord wants us to do. And our work is urgent. You know why? Blind people are stumbling all over the place, aren't they? Oh, my goodness. Listen to the news. I mean, blind people, they're all around us. They're stumbling all Over the place. Our work is really, really urgent. And and we don't have unlimited time in which to do it. Therefore, we must avoid distractions. This work given us to do must be our priority. It's evangelism and it's edification. And here's the deal. No matter how old we are. You know there's a high rate of depression amongst uh, senior citizens. You can understand this. People get older and they're... Bodies don't do what they used to do and their kids, are, I mean, thank God they're married, they're on their own and, you know, sometimes they forget to visit their parents and, and you know, you can't do the things you used to do anymore and, you get depressed. No. I, listen to me, I refuse to let the aging process get me down. Because the aging process doesn't keep me from doing the work that God has given me to do. Even an older person can so shine for Christ that an unsaved person sees the reality of the Lord in your life. When does that, in fact, Matthew said something like this. Listen, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, that can be done by a man or a woman, by a young person or an old person. It can be done by a healthy person or someone who's afflicted. The work we are here to do is to shine forth for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Look at look, look. verse 5, last verse. While I am in the world, the Lord Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Does this mean he has ceased now to be the light of the world? No, 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 no. While he's in the world, he was directly the light of the world. Now that he's been resurrected and ascended, how does he shed his light abroad now? Through us. He indwells us. The light of Christ is implanted in us. It's supposed to be shined forth. In fact, listen a little further to what Matthew says in chapter 5. You are the light of the world, you see? Stop saying, I don't know what my purpose, my worth, my value is. If you're a Christian, are you nuts? You are the light of the world. That's your job. That's it, right? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. I'm not putting my light under the basket of my old age. I'm not going to do it. I got it. The light of Jesus in a person's life doesn't have a shelf life. It's eternally there. Unless we buy into, oh, who am I? And if the kids are not paying attention to you anymore, it hurts, but that shouldn't stifle you from being the light of the Lord Jesus either. Folks, I'm afraid we're getting too distracted by stuff. Instead of seeing what the urgent work is that the Lord gave us to do. Matthew said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Again, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is our work, and it's a must kind of a work. It's not an option. We must, it's a mandate, participate in it with the Lord Jesus himself. It's the work of winning people to him and then helping those people to walk obediently, closely to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord was bound by the work the Father sent him to do. He felt absolutely compelled to do it. And what compelled him to do it was not fear of the Father don't be wrongly motivated here. It wasn't fear of the Father that motivated the Lord. It was the love of the Father for him and His love for the Father. That's the only right motive for us. Don't you love Jesus? Yeah, because He took the initiative in loving us. Don't you value Him more than anything or anybody else? Whom have I in heaven but thee? Besides the besides edge there nothing on earth. That's the motive. Constrained to do the work of God, not by fear of God, but love for God. That's it. And I don't think the Lord Jesus Christ felt compelled to do the work of the Father in order to win his approval. He already had it. This is my only begotten Son with who I am well pleased. And the same is true of us. We don't do the work of God to win his approval We do the work of God because we already have his approval. It's an entirely different motivation. Now, let me close with this verse I hope encourages you and me to do the twofold work of God. Evangelism and edification. We don't have to all do it the same way. Some are going to go to Africa. If God calls you to do that, you should do it. Some are going to go next door. Some are going to smile at somebody at Walmart. Some are going to share... I don't know. A simple 40 words with the UPS guy. Arr, something like this. Hey, hey, I know you're busy, but let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. You know what I just did? I just did the work of God. I leave the results to him. Now, if the UPS guy falls on his knees and prays to accept the Lord Jesus at my doorstep, I'm not done. Because remember, the second part of evangelism is now edification of that new believer. You see? Again, you may find yourself more comfortable uh, in the edification phase of your job than the evangelism phase. It's okay. Don't, don't You don't have to compare yourself to Some are very bold and aggressive evangelists. Praise Lord. Others are nurturers. They're going to come around you, a fellow believer, when you're hurting. They're going to put their arm around you. They're going to pray for you. And they may even do Bible study with you or something like that. All of these things are very, very important. Essential works of Almighty God. So word of encouragement from Paul as we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. I bet you know this. Therefore, that's how it starts. So you got to back up. I'll just sum up for you what came before. It has to do with the merits of Christ and the work of Christ and the blessings of Christ and all he has done for us. Therefore, in light of all that Christ has done. Therefore, then Paul says, my beloved brethren. Loved by who? Paul? Yeah, yeah. But he means by God. Don't you see? We already have the love of God. We don't work to be lovable. We already have his love freely bestowed upon us. What a motivation that is to do the work of the Father. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Immovable. A bunch of stuff can move you. Moods can move you. Burdens, life, age. But this says, no, no, don't do that. Don't do it. Be steadfast, immovable. In what way? Always abounding. Here it goes again. In the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The work of evangelism. And the work of edification is the surest, most certain investment you could possibly make in the lives of others. It will bear eternal reward. And the evil one is ferociously, actively engaged in getting us to chase rabbits, theological rabbits, and everything else. When the center is Christ and the work which he invited us to share in with urgency. Let your light shine before the unsaved, that they may be saved. And when they are, do what you can to make sure they're built up in the faith. Stay with them each step of the way. Bring them to a good church. I know this is a day when people, well, I talked to a guy today. He had a bad experience in church many, many years ago. Now he's older and diseased and, family has fallen apart, and he's depressed and all the rest, and he won't go to church because of an incident that happened many, 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 many years ago. That's the guy who got distracted. You see? That's the guy. Satan's winning over that guy. Who cares if someone offends you here or in another church? It's going to happen. That's not the deal. The church gives you an opportunity to do the second phase of our work, and that is to edify other believers, even if you don't like them. Liking folks is just optional. If you happen to, that's just icing on the cake. It has nothing to do with that. We're still to be doing things on one another's behalf that encourage our faith, that build us up, that keep us straight. We're to pray for one another. We're to embrace one another. We're to weep with one another and rejoice. We're to teach and edify one another. We're to correct one another. We're to counsel with one another. Sometimes we're to bring a meal to someone who's needy in the body, all the rest. You wouldn't be able to do those things without the church. So with all its faults, all those other hypocrites, you know, (laughs) so what? You have a field of people who you can serve, who you can edify. Twofold work. And the Bible says, doing this work, the work of the Lord, should be done with steadfastness and immovability because this kind of work bears fruit. It's never, never in vain. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for saving us, but not to do nothing. Thank you for saving us to do something that matters. I think one of the reasons why these wonderful 22 missionaries to Africa, these ladies, has such joy and smiles on their faces, even under rough circumstances, is that they were smack dab in the center of your will. They were doing your work. And it gave them joy inexpressible. I hope we're jealous of that sort of thing. There's joy in participating with you in the work that matters most, the work of evangelism, taking good news to people lost, and the work of helping save people to better walk with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for separating out those of us who are Christians unto yourself as worshipers throughout eternity. And, oh God, we pray you would use us to help get more of your family. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.